If you're an adult amateur horse lover who wonders what it takes to make magic with horses, you're in the right place. I'm Paige Lockton, and this is The Magic of Horsecraft. Join me for conversations with wizards in the world of horsecraft about the ingredients needed to build connection with horses and courage in life. Turns out these things are connected. How do I know? <laughs> like most things, I learned the hard way. I lost the magic I once had with horses. In regaining it, I discovered that the elements of connection are learnable. Whether you ride your horses forwards, backwards, or sideways, stick around for stories that show us how we are the same and that anything is possible. Take a chance. Well, hello there and welcome to my episode with William Micklem. William Micklem is a mentor and an icon in the horse world. I've known William since I was 18 years old, when I was one of three riders, the other two being Karen Brain and Rachel Hunter, to be awarded a Young Riders Scholarship to train with Captain Mark Phillips in England and at his training centre in Scotland, when uh, the training would be mostly handled and handed over to William Micklem. So Karen, Rachel and I won this scholarship, which was supposed to be a yearly thing, but sadly the company that sponsored it went bankrupt and it was a one-time only thing. So we were so insanely lucky. We had three months spent training um, in England, half of it split between uh, England and Scotland actually, and the facility up in Scotland was something else. It was um, on the grounds of the Glen Eagles Hotel, which is a five-star resort. And they had just opened an equestrian center and the headliner was Captain Mark Phillips. And he is the former husband of Princess Anne. At the time, they were still married. And Captain Mark Phillips and Princess Anne are exceptionally talented accomplished riders that I had spent my lifetime reading about and in the 70s and 80s they had both been to the Olympics and world championships and all sorts of wonderful things and um, William Micklem was the son of a famous horseman and became exceptionally well known for several things. Um, he has literally written the book on horsemanship and he holds the gold standard for heart in horsemanship. Um, he has a beautiful, holistic approach to humans and horses that is generous and sunny and full of compassion. Um, and he's looked to for advice on the world stage uh, in the world's best equestrian leading organizations and magazines. Um, writer, author, speaker, coach um, up to the international level. Um, he coaches grassroots pony clubs with as much joy as he does competitive junior athletes and has coached right up to the Olympic level. Um, he resides in Ireland now with his wife Sarah and his children who are growing and, and fledging, <laughs> leaving the home. Um, and... He's also known for breeding some of the most spectacular horses in the world who have gone on under um, 
multiple riders from multiple nations to win and medal at Olympics and World Championships. So one of those riders is Zara Phillips and her horse High Kingdom. And there are the O'Connors in the States. Karen and David O'Connor have both ridden horses that were bred by or sourced by William Micklem um, up to the world stage. Um, Mandiba uh, and others. So, um, yeah, he knows what he's talking about in terms of horse stuff. And um, he also is a beautiful, philosophical, well-rounded human being. So as a young rider, as an 18-year-old, I showed up a bit sort of wild and woolly from the West. It was 1989, and the three of us young scholarship recipients were looking all neon and asymmetrical hairdos. And up there in Scotland, uh, around the Glen Eagles Hotel, <laughs> my accent stood out. So did my hair. It looked like I'd been electrocuted. And so did our fluorescent clothing. Oh, yeah, it was the era of fluorescence. But they were all houndstooth and barber and, you know, subtle shades of muted green and countryside. <laughs> they expected us to socialize in, I suppose, a, a different group than our choice. And the first thing we did was make friends at the social club. <laughs> the social club for the hotel and made fantastic lifelong friends with the sous chefs there um, after they took a little bit of warming up to us. <laughs> so we broke all kinds of rules, had all kinds of parties and um, learned so much about life and about William while we were there on scholarship. And then about 20 years later or more, I ran into William at the World Championships, where he was walking the course, checking out what his horseman Diva and Karen were about to do on course. And he was with his wife and he bumped into my mom and I on the course walk. And I wondered if he would recognize me. And he did. In fact, the first words out of his mouth were, yes, Paige, I remember you. Just last week, we were looking at a picture of you without very many clothes on. <laughs> And while that sounds wrong, it was uh, true. <laughs> there was a picture of me in my bikini at a local horse show in the winter in Scotland, uh, where we were fundraising for one of the very first years they ran Red Nose Day. Red Nose Day is a famous, huge day of fundraising in Europe. And you can dare people to do things for money, essentially. <laughs> And uh, the three of us Canadians were dared to ride a course of show jumps in our knickers. We turned that down and said, mm, our knickers aren't getting seen in public. There's <laughs> no way these are seeing the light of day, but we will ride in our bikinis and put red noses on and raise money for charity. So we did that. And apparently there's, there's a newspaper clipping of me somewhere, all white and pasty in my gitch. Lovely. And uh, from that point on, when we reconnected at the World Championships on the course walk at uh, Kentucky, we've been pen pals, essentially, catching up on, um, on each other's lives. And he's been an amazing source of wisdom and strength and encouragement. Um, and I asked William 
a little while ago to do a podcast episode that was really aimed at horsemanship before I had sort of this broader view of encompassing resilience and sort of a broader lens to my talk. So I have this beautiful interview that I'm saving for my horsey friends because I think I cross audiences here and we'll, you guys will tell me. <laughs> And my horsey friends can click a link to get an extraordinary talk on horsemanship. But today I'm sharing something for a broad audience. And this is for anyone. This is from an elder and mentor and storyteller um, telling stories of possibility, stories of hope, stories that anything is possible. I asked him to leave behind the sort of thing that my friends at HGS or my friends who were sous chefs could listen to, not just my horsey friends. And I asked him for the sort of thing that if and when he does have grandchildren, um, he would like to leave his grandchildren with. And boy, did he deliver. William Micklem is a storyteller with tremendous breadth and depth. And in the next 30 minutes, you're going to hear him cover stories from the near and predicted fall of New York City and London in the 1900s. Uh, stories and quotes of other famous people like Mark Pollock and um, his story and a quote, don't respect the gap between reality and fantasy. You're going to see or hear rather stories with acronyms that you'll remember his three C's and what they stand for, what Cal stands for, and how he encourages us all to be brave, to be courageous, to be ourselves, and to live life fully wide open and joyously. Um, it, it really is extraordinary how he can weave from one story to the next over and over again themes of anything is possible and about making the most out of what we have. So I hope you will join us to the end. I know that you're going to love this, and I would like to hear more from you and about what you want to hear about. So enjoy. How are you doing? I need more time in the day. Yes. Well, I won't take too much of today's time. Paige, I'm delighted to do this. Thanks for fitting me in. I'm delighted to do it. Excellent. So are we ready to get going? I was just speaking this morning to a person called Trevor Power, Power an Irish name, but I was aware of Trevor Power when I was probably around 10. And Trevor Power was remarkable because he would ride his motorcycle down the drive to our house, standing on the seat. And he couldn't be bucked off a horse because he could sit, stand on the horse's back, and he could vault on and vault off at will. And he was fearless. And he was a wonderful, and, and yet gentle. He, he, in no way was he violent. So he was a wonderful person for my father to have with the young horses. And he went off and uh, into the racing world for a while. And then he went on the building sites. And after when he was about I suppose, 18 or 19. I have not heard of him again since then until I rang him this morning, which I'll explain later on. And he is now 84 and still sounds just as spirited. And what I didn't know was that his father rode a horse called April the 1st 
to divide the puissance at seven foot one at the horse, the first horse of the year show at the end of the Second World War. In other words, in 1946. And this, this was a mare, April the 1st, and she was only 15 two. And she went on to produce a dynasty of horses. And at the end of that line is Lordship's Graffalo, who was second at Badminton this weekend. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> That's an amazing connection. I, I, I love all of these little connections. And the stallion that covered this mare was called Forbra. And I was in the Forbra Pony Club. And the stallion was bred by a, a famous hound man called Percival Williams. And that Percival Williams is the grandfather of Venetia Williams, who, if you play this blog uh, in the UK, everybody will know Venetia Williams because she's uh, Percival Williams's granddaughter, and she is one of the best national hunt trainers in the country. So she's in the top 10 of national hunt trainers, racing trainers in the country. And the fascinating thing about Venetia is when I knew her, she probably was about seven or eight. And her first pony was a, one, a pony called Rasper. And Rasper was sold to John Williams for his daughter, Venetia, by my father. And Rasper was ridden by my brother, Charlie, for the very good reason that Rasper, Charlie was definitely the best rider in the family. And Rasper was not easy. So selling Rasper to the little daughter of the master of local master of hounds probably wasn't the widest, wisest thing to do. But John Williams, Venetia's father, sensibly sent Rasper back for further education from Charlie. And then that became Venetia's first pony. But at that age, when she started riding, she was nervous. And what did she end up doing when she was in her early 20s? But ride around the Grand National Course at Aintree. So there you have this transition from a little nervous child to one riding the Grand National Course at entry. And that's what all teachers must keep themselves alive to, is the fact that huge change is, poss is possible. And you don't just look at the realities, but you look at the possibilities, which is something I think I mentioned the last time I talked to you. There's some lovely connection, and um, that just fits in beautifully to my theme about anything being possible and overcoming obstacles and fear. So that's why uh, I asked you to come back today. Initially, I thought I was going to do two courses and two podcasts. One really aimed at horse people understanding horses and another aimed at an audience that wants to know how to have resilience and hope in these difficult times. And the more I studied what it took to find connection with horses, the more I found commonalities with what we needed to have great resilience. And I also found through my own test, um, when life looked really bleak, whether it is looking at the news and looking at war and climate change and being bombarded by that sort of thing, or my own health challenges with cancer and my life falling apart. When I heard the stories of my ancestors and my elders, they gave me great perspective because they had lived through challenges of their own that I found unimaginable. And so it was really gave me a lot of, of hope. 
If this is resonating with you, and you've ever felt a little lost as you navigate conflicting data from horse pros across the disciplines, all claiming to have their own methods or recipes for making magic with horses, and you want the clarity and confidence to make sense of it all, I have a roadmap for you. Check out our foundation course. Consider it Horsecraft 101, from amateur to magician, making magic with horses a unique group coaching program with live online support that helps adult amateurs from non-horsey families who are seeking understanding and connection become the best stewards for their horses in nine weeks without conflicting data, lack of knowledge, or not knowing where to go to for help. So they understand how and why horses think and react the way they do to create a relaxed and confident relationship. If you're still on the fence, we have a freebie for you. If you're ready, so are we. You can get started at themagicofhorsecraft.com. Until then, take a chance and remember, anything is possible. And so that's why I'm back here today to add on to the beautiful session that we had in the winter about horses and maybe share a story as you have. And if you have anything else to share about the essence of connection, trust, resilience is there anything that speaks to you that you'd like to leave us with i i think in this you mentioned covid i think it's interesting to be aware that spanish flu uh, at the time of the first world war in two years killed 50 million or just over 50 million people in fact more people died because of spanish flu than died because of injury in the first world war and instead of fighting in the first world war and i think that we forget that and one true story, which I always love, is the one about the suggestions that New York City and London at the same time, at the turn of the century, 1900, or just before 1900, both cities were threatened with closure, with collapsing because of horses. Um, at that time, both in London and in New York, on an everyday basis, there were about 100,000 horses working in each city, over 100,000. And you can imagine that there were so many because, for, in, for example, the buses, each bus had 12 horses. You had three teams of four horses, which would share the, the load through the day. But of course, these 100,000 horses going through the streets of London or the streets of New York leave a lot of droppings, a lot of, of, of urine, and all of the manure creates dust, and the dust brings in flies. And there was a calculation at the turn of the century in 1900 that in 20 years' time, the streets of New York would be nine feet under manure. And then there was the whole business as there were more and more horses of they needed more space to be kept and they needed more fodder to be brought in. And of course, the fodder that was being brought in was being brought in by horses. And people looked upon this as a potential disaster. And of course, what happened was that the Model T Ford arrived. So car transport arrived and that uh, solved the problem. And I have great faith in human ingenuity I think we're facing bigger problems than we've ever faced before, generally in the world. But I think that we can come up with answers um, if 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 people begin to understand and accept the problems that are there. That the 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 challenge we have actually is to explain uh, to to people what the problems are 
uh, as you know, there are, there are many who don't uh, accept that we're in dire trouble because of climate change. But anyway, leaving that aside, I have great faith in if we can accept that there are problems that we will, will come up with solutions. And um, as regards horse people, particularly at an elite level, it's very easy to be 100% focused just on your horses and just on your competition work, just on the next Olympics or whatever it may be. Uh, but it behooves all of us to have a wider view and look at ourselves, not just as horse riders, but as people and look at our whole lives. Uh, and I've spoken to you many times before about how all of these things are integrated. There's, you can't just look at one. We have to look at the whole. And uh, by looking at the whole, you probably also will find a direction in the horse world that will suit you better because we have, we, 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 everyone is, is an individual and everybody has different beliefs. And it's, it's, it's not just a question of knowing yourself. It's a question of being yourself. You know, there's the, the, the famous phrase, know yourself, but that by itself is useless because you could end up just sitting in your armchair all day long. You've got to be yourself within the horse world, within your lives. You've got to act in a way which you can live with, that you can be happy with in terms of your own values, your own desires. And uh, particularly in the horse world, that's very relevant because in the past, I think competition riders may have been uh, forced, maybe that's too strong a word, but encouraged to abuse their horses because of overuse of the horses. And I think more and more people are, uh, are better at assessing what the horses are capable of and what is reasonable to ask them. And uh, they're very conscious of, of partnership. So in that sense, things are much improved. Hmm. I do appreciate your perspective from a broader lens that you bring to this. And uh, we can be quite myopic sometimes. Um, so I appreciate that. Uh, do you have anything else to share about trust? Uh, and the ingredients to connection? I suppose that the, the, one of the phrases that hit me at an early stage and, and has never left me is a sentence that I read in Pajaisky's book, Alwaz Pajaisky, who was the uh, chief rider and director, became the director of the Spanish riding school in Vienna and a great writer. And he said, the first and foremost principle of training so I read that in my brain, the first and foremost principle of training. Those are his very words. I was getting very excited. So what are they? Is to have empathy with your student. And empathy is, is not sympathy. Empathy is being able to think like a horse or, because he could have been talking about that as well, think like a human being, think like the student. Now, I was a little bit sad to read of your initial connection with me at Glen Eagles, because I would like to think that I should have put myself in your place when you first came to Glen Eagles. And it is possible that I didn't do that sufficiently, but it is something which I do on a daily basis the whole time is to try and have empathy, both with my uh, equine students and my human students. And life as a coach or a trainer is suddenly so much easier. In fact, I would often say it is easy if you can manage to have empathy with your students. But that means you have to study horses. You have to study humans. You have to know about senses. I mean, even something simple as regards horses, even knowing that they're 
hearing is rather like dogs, that they can hear at a frequency which we cannot hear. So pigs and uh, machinery can produce uh, noises at a frequency that we cannot hear, but they will be able to hear. So they get frightened. Even understanding with their eyesight, how their eyesight is so different from us. And they have to move the position of the head and neck to be able to focus short or long distance. So the, the, the cruelty, and I would call it cruelty, that is imposed on horses by not allowing them to move the, the head and neck is just appalling. Absolutely appalling. And I always laugh when, laugh is the wrong word, but when you see a horse in PF or Passage, a very exaggerated, a very round, advanced outline, but with their head and head vertical, how they will often shy at the letters that are near them, the letters which they've been passing every day of the week for months and months and months. And then you let go of the rein and let their head and neck out and change the position of the, of the head, and they will be able to see short distance, and they no longer snort uh, or shy at the letters that are around them. But it's something which doesn't come straight away as a coach or as a person working with horses or people. You have to study your subject and there's, there's no getting away from that. And one needs to be curious. Mm. As regards the things that I do in trying to be holistic, everything I say would actually apply to a bigger world, not just to the horse world. So I use my three ups with young children. And I will say head up, heart up, and toes up. And then as they get a little bit older, I will change it to head up, heart up, and heat up. Head up, heart up, and heat up. Now, the head up is, has a double meaning. You always need to look where you want to go, but it also there's a, there's a connection with positivity there. Heart up, there's a connection with positivity again. It also puts your back in the right, right outline. But we can talk with younger people, we can talk about what heart up means and why it's important to, to uh, delight in what you're doing and keep your heart up. And then the toes up is obvious for the younger riders as regards getting a more secure low leg, keeping the heel down. And then, but it's the heat up, which is more interesting. I think we, we have to heat up in terms of our work in our daily life. It, when I just said you need to not just know yourself, you need to be yourself. Well, you can't be yourself unless you heat up. Well, what do I mean by heat up? Well, it's interesting that the, the uh, word cal, as in calorie, which you would use to heat up, comes from the Latin, the old derivation. And what does the word cal mean in Latin? But horse. It's a strange coincidence. But I, I, um, I, I use the word cal, C-A-L, to remind me of the key things about heating up. And the first C is for confidence. And as you get confidence, and I was somebody who had very little confidence as a youngster, as you get more confidence about how you can do things, then you become more courageous. The confidence has to come inch by inch. It has to come tiny bit by tiny bit. The whole process is to be slow and progressive, but then you will get confidence. It leads to courage, but that's not the only thing which leads to courage. And the second C that I would use is cooperation. And as we work in a team, whether it's with horses or outside horses, but of course the biggest team member with horses is our horse itself then you can build up huge courage. Uh, every single person listening to this will think of times when by working with a team member, 
they were able to do things which they wouldn't be able to do by themselves and give themselves courage. I think of an early silly example from my life. I was in the CCF, which is the Combined Cadet Force as a child, which uh, many, many, many people were in the, in, in the UK. And we had to go to camp every year. And my horror was the assault course, because on the assault course, there'd always be something which required a head for heights. And I had no head for heights. I would say I was frightened of heights. And one particular time where I actually was in charge of my troop of men, and we had to climb up this, what appeared to be a, a, a very tall um, post. And then it had a crossbar across it and climbed down the other post, the other end. But the crossbar probably was about 15, 20 foot in the air. And we were each supposed to climb up and climb across this and climb down again. And I was terrified of heights. So my way out of this problem was I said, right, I'm an injured man. You have to carry me across up the post, cross the high cross rail and down again. But it's a very good example of how using team members, using cooperation, you can do things which you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And there are more, many more serious examples all the time. But I think from an early stage, uh, people have to realize if you're going to be a successful horse rider, that it has to be done in cooperation with the horse. And that's why I use the word acceptance and not submission. Uh, submission doesn't get cooperation at all, which and it's a, it's a big problem. And the, the, the next C that I would use is compassion. That people, in, and the Ukraine at the moment is a good example of that, um, people have compassion for the people in Ukraine, and they will be prepared to go to extraordinary lengths uh, to support and even fight for Ukraine. And when you, when, you, when you feel for the harm that somebody else is having, the hurt that somebody else is having, it is, it is often the case that you are prepared to take some of that yourself and be prepared to suffer hurt yourself. You have the courage to do that because of compassion. People who are, feel that any section of society is downtrodden, have compassion and can get great courage. Martin Luther King is a good example, had compassion for uh, a whole group of people who would, did not have the rights that they should have. And that gave him, that because of that, he had the courage to stand up in front of thousands and tens of thousands and at his big speeches, over a hundred thousand people uh, to, make his, to make his views clear. So, those, those three of, first of all, getting confidence and then being able to learn to work cooperatively and or working with compassion gives you great courage. Mm -hmm. But the thing that gives greatest courage, the thing that gives the greatest courage is the L at the end of Cal, it's love. If you are passionate, if you really love your horses, you really love the feeling of speed, if you really love a person, then courage can miraculously appear. You know, story after story of human love, somebody who can be extremely shy, uh, afraid to talk to a girl, or vice versa, afraid to talk to a boy. Suddenly, they fall in love, and they have the greatest courage in the world to do extraordinary things, and will do extraordinary things for that person in the future.
And the same thing happens. People fall in love with horses and fall in love with the feeling of speed and horse riding, and they develop this great courage. But this is the dangerous one because like a, a young person that loves driving fast or a young person uh, on their first event horse that at, at a slightly higher level, that's got a fantastic gallop and a fantastic jump. They just love it so much that they don't have the competence underneath that to do it in a safe way and often get into trouble. So passion can get us into trouble. A lot of love can get us into trouble, but it is the reason why a lot of people have courage. And if you can find a passion in life, it, it gives you the courage and gives you the motivation to keep going. So those are my three C's and my L. That was a beautiful share and I can um, relate to it on um, another level now as I have a passion, a love of helping others, lifting them up, uh, giving them hope as so many have given me in my past. So as you've said, nothing happens alone. We need the connection with others and uh, the compassion, self-compassion, and uh, you've left us with a lot of ingredients for hope today. I appreciate that, William. Thank you so much. I often say to people, life is not the way it's supposed to be. Life is the way that it is. And I think young people should be reminded of this often, is that life doesn't always work out quite the way you think it should be. Life is the way it is, but life turns out the best for those who make the best of the way that it turns out. And you will understand that totally. It's not actually a negative when you add to that. So what is our strategy to go forward from that point? How do we make the best mm -hmm. of things? And there's a wonderful man called Mark Pollock, who's in Ireland, who is both blind and paralyzed. He was a rower and a, a fantastic sportsman. And he went blind, I think because of a genetic disease. And then one night he went to the loo and instead of opening the door and going to the loo, he opened a, a door which led to a, a veranda, which he went to the side of and fell off. And so became paralyzed. We'll never forget what he said when he came to speak to a group. And he said, don't respect the gap between reality and fantasy. So what he's saying in a slightly different, using one extra word from me is, is the realities and the possibilities. You've got the realities, but always look at the possibilities and don't respect the gap between the two because extraordinary things can happen. My silly story about the manure in New York and London is the same thing is you, you look for the possibilities. Everybody said it's going to be dire. New York and London are going to collapse. We're going to have to rebuild these cities somewhere else. But of course they didn't, that there was an answer. There's an inevitable progression where you start off deciding that things are impossible. And then with a bit more time and thought, you find that the thing that you were worried about is just improbable. And then you come up with solutions that are inevitable. So things start off maybe a bit looking impossible. Then you say, well, they're improbable, it might work. And then it becomes inevitable. There's a progression and that should be very heartening for people. Very heartening indeed. You asked me what I should leave for my grandchildren or my children. I think we'll look at it. If I ever get grandchildren, I'd be very lucky. But I suppose the absolutely key phrase or key little line is inch by inch, life's a cinch. 
yard by yard, life is hard. And that works all the time at all levels in all ways is absolutely key. Now, I know a lot of people listening to this may not work in imperial. They may only work in metric and centimeters, but suffice it to say that an inch is a very small unit of measurements. So little by little is a great motto to have. And if I want to expand on that, I would say you should be three things. The first thing is you should be inquiring or curious is another word. Because you need to be that if you're to learn, you need to be that if you're to use accumulated wisdom and find better ways. Secondly, I say you should be demanding. And that comes back again about not just know yourself, but be yourself. You're demanding because you stretch yourself. You get the details right and you have high standards. And I would think there of your example of me teaching you how to mount and dismount when you thought that you knew a hundred percent how to mount and dismount at Glen Eagles. My, my, my being particular about that is because I want everything to be progressive. And the way I teach to mount and dismount leads very quickly to vaulting on and vaulting off. And that's a very useful skill to have. It also leads to increased safety. But the third thing I would say, which connects with some of your questions. Uh, to when I said about being sunny, we need to be generous. We need to learn from the start to be generous to ourselves, to our horses, to our students, to everybody. You need to be generous if you're going to grow your spirit and your confidence and grow your team. And that comes back to cooperative work. So it, it's super important to be inquiring, to be demanding, and to be generous. And there you have a, a holistic way of looking at things. And getting, getting that model right allows everything else to fall in place. You become empowered. And uh, you then will have a, a winning edge, not just for your competition life, but for your life as a whole. Absolutely. Yeah, they are the same. <laughs> Well, you've left us with some beautiful gems, as always, lots to think about, William. And I'm very thankful that uh, I got to know you. I'm sorry for being a surly teenager. Uh, you, you had lots of empathy as you could. We're with... not a surly. You're not a surly. What? Never were a surly teenager. Uh, but we came from certainly different worlds. And, and, uh, and in the end, um, you gave each of us exactly what we needed on that scholarship and then have continued to be a mentor to me over these 30 years or more. It's, it's been um, quite a ride. Without being anything else but 100% honest, it's a two-way thing, the same as horse riding. And what you have given me is huge. And that's wonderful. Thank you, William. And no coach should forget that the people who teach them most are their students, mm. whether they are human or they are equine. And no coach should forget that the most important person is not themselves, not the people that are watching. The most important person is the student. We, we, if you are, call yourself a coach, then like a good leader, you are there to serve your students. And, and uh, doing that suddenly, life becomes again so easy. Thank you so much. So keep smiling. The one, who, the one who smiles is the one worthwhile. Oh, thank you so much. You too, William. It's easy to say. That was, in the, that was in one of the very, very old versions of the Pony Club book. 
the one who smiles is the one worthwhile. So people have been thinking about this problem of how to make sure that enjoyment and pleasure, uh, being sunny, is how to engineer that with our children has it been something which people have been thinking about for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. That should have stayed in the Pony Club manual. That is a good one. Stay sunny, my mentor. Okay. Safe times. Take care. Hey, you're still here. Thanks so much for listening. What you think and feel matters. If this resonated with you, please like and share. It truly makes a difference. I encourage you to engage with the content on my Substack account and my socials, all at The Magic of Horsecraft where you can join the discussion and shape the future shows. Tell me what you want to hear more of or less of, and we'll evolve together as we grow a community of like-minded souls here for the good of the horse. If you're an adult amateur horse lover looking for confidence and clarity in your role of equine steward, check out my course, From Amateur to Magician, Making Magic with Horses at themagicofhorsecraft.com. Until then, I'm here to remind you of a couple things. One, underneath it all, We all want the same things, to be heard, understood, and accepted for who we are. And two, anything is possible. Take a chance.